Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by E.J. Dion Jr., a journalist and political commentator and a longtime op-ed columnist for The Washington Post. He discussed some of the themes of his new book, Why the Right Went Wrong, Conservatism from Goldwater to the Tea Party and Beyond. Among other topics, Dion also spoke about why Donald Trump is so appealing to many Republican voters and the influence of political comedy and satire. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. So our guest today, E.J. Dion, uh, Jr., longtime columnist for the Washington Post, uh, native of Massachusetts, um, senior fellow at Brookings, uh, professor at Georgetown, weekly NPR commentator, uh, author of a number of books. Uh, each of which I've liked a lot. I have not read the latest, but the latest just out is Why the Right Went Wrong, and in the Shameless Commerce Division, here it is, right? And uh, Let I, the audio record show he just held up the book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Welcome. Thank you so much. I think the first question should go to those people kind enough to be outside the door there. Hello, all. Thank you so much uh, for coming, and thank all of you for coming, including uh, so many old friends. Uh, one of the people, actually, I wanted to quote in this, and I had carefully scribbled down uh, his something he had said to me, um, and then I left the house in a rush and didn't bring it, is something Richard Parker said. And while this is not connected to what I'm going to say about the book, it is something I would love to talk about both in the course of my conversation and it has to do with the future of the press. And uh, Richard, see how close I get to your uh, quote that there are basically two traps, uh, he had a better word, uh, for the media. Uh, one lies in the past and one lies in the future. Uh, and that I think that we're at a moment in our conversations about the media uh, where there is either a temptation to seek salvation through all kinds of technological means as opposed to seeing these technological means uh, as potentially very useful but also challenging and on the other side to be so nostalgic for a past that we A, don't see the problems with that past and B, we miss the new possibilities that these new technologies create and I think that is the conundrum uh, that uh, we need to talk about. And I'd like to get to that toward the um, end of my talk because I would love this, since I am at the Shortstein Center, I'd love this to be a conversation not only about my book, which, uh, you know, happily my publisher's been very supportive, so I get to talk about that a lot. Um, and I could talk about it all day, and I probably, I have many days. I, I'm, I am on sort of a cheap rock band's four-city tour this week, so I, I'm going to Boston, uh, Louisville, Chicago, and Madison this week. So I'll talk about the book plenty, and I will talk some uh, today. But I'd also like to open, because there are so many distinguished people here, including former colleagues and also the uh, one of the greatest ambassadors in human history, Peter Westmacott, who's just joined the Institute of Politics. There's a guy who knew how to deal with the press in Washington, uh, D.C. Um, and there are so many other friends here, and Susie also, who used to live in Lowell House many, many years ago, um, that I would love to have you uh, join in. I don't want to use up all the jokes that I was going to use tonight, but um, <laughs> I have to, there are just a couple I want to share. There are many people who are critical of Twitter. Uh, I am actually a Twitter fan. My children make fun of me all the time. And anybody who says you can't say anything in 140 characters should ponder the words, all men are created equal. Uh, and that there are a whole lot of things you could actually say in 140 characters. Uh, um, but also, when people are smart and clever, Twitter can be a real opportunity. And some of you, I, I owe a debt to Donald Trump. I hate to say that because if you've written a book called Why the Right Went Wrong, uh, no one could be better. And I actually snuck in a bit of book promotion in a column I wrote at the beginning of the year where I, um, it was a column of advice uh, to Republican candidates. It was... Uh, uh, the lead of the column was free advice is worth about what you pay for it. Um, and I actually did have substantive things to say about all the other candidates. And when I got to Trump, uh, I just said, um, you know, he, I don't have any advice for him and he wouldn't listen to me even if I did have any. But I do feel a certain gratitude 
because I am about to come out with a book called Why the Right Went Wrong, Thus Quick Book Promotion, linked to Amazon in the column online, uh, which has increased interest uh, in this uh, question. And the last line of the column was, so just this once, colon, thank you. Um, so I don't count this as a second thank you to Donald Trump, but just a repetition of the only uh, thank you. But when, the, when he picked that fight with the Pope, Twitter just came alive in the most wonderful way. I, my favorite was from my Washington Post colleague, Carlos Lozada, who tweeted, why did it take him three days to rise? I would have risen in three hours. Jesus, very low energy. Um, <clears throat> Or, um, and uh, there was another uh, tweeter um, who had the same basic idea. Um, this is truly one of the worst popes drive to Fiat, which is a very weak car, low energy, uh, uh, can barely hit 80. I drive a Cadillac. Nice. Um, <laughs> so we, we are grateful to Mr. Trump for many, in many ways, though not necessarily for what he might do to the republic. Um, the, um, my book is called Why the Right Went Wrong, and it focuses, it, it's everything I touch, and I don't mean this as a compliment to myself because the book ended up perhaps way longer than it should have been. Everything I touch seems to turn to history uh, because when you're trying to explain, I find, and this may be a weakness, that when I'm trying to explain X, I have to, well, X, before X there was A, and before A there was A minus 1, and what I found as I was writing the book is I, it ended up being a much longer book that took us all the way back to Barry Goldwater's uh, 1964 campaign. And I do believe that uh, when historians say 200 years from now look back, I, I believe the Goldwater campaign will be seen as one of the genuinely important uh, events uh, of the last century. Um, because that campaign fundamentally altered the nature of the Republican Party. Uh, and it also set the uh, party's politicians up uh, to make a series of promises they couldn't keep. The first sentence of my book uh, is, The History of Contemporary American Conservatism is a Story of Disappointment and Betrayal. Um, and that works in a couple of ways. First, if you go back and look at the Goldwater insurgency itself, uh, go back and read um, Phyllis Schlafly's uh, A Choice Not an Echo, uh, it was all about conservatives feeling betrayed by the leadership of their party going way back to the 1930s. Um, but it's also true in another way, which is that um, if you go back to the core promises of Goldwater, uh, conservative politicians have felt obligated to make those promises over and over again, and they simply couldn't keep them. Um, you know, briefly, they promised to reduce the size of government. Um, that is, uh, turns out not to be possible. Government was exactly the same size as the share of GDP when Ronald Reagan left office as it was when Ronald Reagan took office. Uh, it can't be done because most voters don't want it done. Uh, two great um, analysts of public opinion, uh, Lloyd Free and Hadley Cantrell, wrote many, many years ago, and a lot of people in this room know what they said, that Americans are ideological conservatives and operational liberals, uh, by which uh, they meant that Americans can be quite critical of government in the abstract, uh, but in the end want a great deal uh, from uh, government. Um, and you don't have to look any farther than the Tea Party to see this. Most uh, many, many supporters of the Tea Party are resolutely opposed to cuts in Social Security and Medicare. Now, that might have something to do with the fact that the average age of the Tea Party membership is at or close to 65 uh, years old, but it's a very old group. The Tea Party uh, members, as two uh, great Harvard scholars, uh, uh, Theda Scotchpole and my now Brookings Institution colleague Vanessa Williamson showed, um, they argue that these were earned benefits as against, uh, you know, the giveaways to everybody else. However you look at it, they are still a big part of government, and if you don't cut them, you're going to have problems producing the smaller government. Similarly, um, conservatives want national defense, and actually, even though people listen to all kinds of abstract critiques of regulation. They rather like it that government uh, tries to keep the air, air safe, the water clean, consumer products uh, in some condition so they won't kill you, and on and on down the list. Farmers also like their subsidies as well. Uh, secondly, a second core promise 
uh, was to roll back the cultural changes of the 1960s. And one of the fun things about writing this book was to be sort of pushed back in time. And something I commend to you all, you know, I said at the beginning there were wonderful things about the new technology. Um, one of them is the things you can look at that were on television 60 uh, years ago. And from Rick Perlstein's great book on the Goldwater campaign, he reminded me of this uh, a documentary called Choice uh, that was made for Goldwater. And it was so incendiary and seen as so racist that eventually Goldwater had to denounce it. But that video is still there online. And it is really, you could see the birth of uh, 30 campaign, 100 campaign commercials uh, Republicans would use. It sort of began with this jazzy music uh, showing people, God forbid, dancing uh, in bikinis, occasionally bare-breasted. These were some of the values we were seeing, fast, uh, uh, you know, um, fast cars, urban riots. Uh, and then we come to the past, uh, which is being betrayed by this a permissive presence and there's a great line where the announcer is talking about the pioneers and they settled it and marked it with a cross and it shows a wooden cross in the ground. It goes on for about a half an hour like this. It is really worth um, watching. Um, but the core promise adherent in that and in the conservative movement ever since was somehow all of these cultural changes could be rolled back. The country didn't want to do it. And then of late, um, uh, the uh, candidates, particularly Mr. Trump, are talking about reversing the effects of the 1965 Immigration Act, essentially changing the ethnic makeup of the country back to where it was perhaps in 1940 or 1950. Um, so in one sense, that, that is part of what explains Donald Trump. Another thing um, that explains Donald Trump is something that a lot of conservatives themselves uh, have talked about, particularly Ross Douthat, the uh, New York Times columnist Raihan Salam, a conservative intellectual. Ross and Raihan wrote a very interesting book uh, some years ago that grew out of a piece they wrote called The Party of Sam's Club, uh, and that is Governor Tim Pawlenty's phrase. And their basic thesis was working class whites have voted Republican in substantial numbers uh, for election after election uh, and had nothing to show for it and felt they had nothing uh, to show for it. And when you look at where Donald Trump is getting his votes, um, he's actually getting it across ideological, uh, across the ideological spectrum, but his support is heavily tilted toward less well-off uh, Republicans, uh, you know, a billionaire is leading a class war uh, inside the Republican primaries. Now, I'm not going to talk too long because I, with this group, I'd really love your comments and a Q&A, but I think this has really important implications for both our political parties. Um, and that when you look at Trump's message, it's important to see that it comes in two parts. Part one is the uh, nativist part, uh, sometimes racist part, um, you know, the emphasis on law and order. He actually harkens back to Richard Nixon at times uh, when he's speaking. Um, but the other part is a kind of economic populism, whether genuine or not, that opposes the effects of trade treaties that says, I will not cut Social Security and Medicare so much for entitlement reform. Um, recently, he even said he wants to negotiate the price of drugs under Medicare, which, uh, as best I can tell, is something only Democrats were for until Donald Trump uh, came along. So there is this combination of very alarming and troubling and authoritarian on the one side, um, but yet this uh, rhetoric that is designed uh, to appeal to voters who have some very legitimate beefs. Now, before I close, I want to sort of make two quick points and one with a second will relate to the whole point of the Shorenstein Center. Um, you know, the first is that I go back to Goldwater in part because Goldwater set off um, both a purge and a retreat. Uh, the purge was of moderate and liberal Republicans from the party. The center of gravity of the party moved from, oh, perhaps even here, near here in Boston, but certainly from uh, the Northeast down to the South. Um, and secondly, uh, after the conservative movement began assuming control of the party, um, they systematically threw out and purged in primaries um, both liberal Republicans. We forget how many liberal Republicans there used to be. Jacob Javits in New York who lost a primary. Clifford Case 
uh, yes, Elliot Richardson, um, uh, Clifford Case, whom as early as 1959, uh, the senator from New Jersey, the National Review, was referring to him as hopeless case, um, and um, uh, Mac Mathias of Maryland, uh, they either lost primaries or they were defeated by Democrats or they quit. Uh, then began the purge of moderates. Uh, and so there were very few actual moderate Republicans left uh, in office. Charlie Baker a bit here. You can, you can find them in a couple of places, but there really are not many left. But what's a real problem for the more moderate conservative forces in the party is they are looking around now and saying, we want to stop Trump and Ted Cruz, except the voters whom they used to rely on are no longer Republican. Uh, many of the voters they used to rely on are no longer uh, Republican. You see that certainly here in Massachusetts, which we forget how Republican uh, Massachusetts uh, could be. Um, and, and it was one of the kind of founding states of the Republican Party. Um, you see it in the collar counties around Philadelphia. You see it in a lot of parts of the Northeast and Middle West and the uh, West Coast. Um, and so this is a problem for the recovery of, a, of what I see as a saner and more constructive kind of conservatism. Um, Dwight Eisenhower is actually a hero of my account, but we'll, we can go there later. I see Ike as representing the alternative form of conservatism to the one Goldwater uh, represented. Um, and being something like the philosophy, I think conservatives would be better off looking to. Um, but the last point I want to make, because I do want to open up a conversation about the media, um, is that um, as I was finishing the book, I was very grateful to Jackie Combs, who was here um, at the Shorenstein Center, who really did a, an extraordinary piece of work on uh, the conservative media, which uh, the maverick conservative uh, David Frum likes to refer to as the conservative entertainment complex. Um, and I thought Jackie made an, the, one of the essential points about our politics um, right now, um, which is that uh, conservative media, I would argue also in alliance with another group called the radical rich, as another Frum term um, that my friend Jane Mayer has, uh, just has a new book about, um, have really created a whole different pole of power outside the control of the, you know, the, literally the political class, the actual elected people um, in the Republican Party. Um, and that's why I think talk of a Republican establishment um, is misplaced. I don't think there is a Republican establishment, or if you believe in that word, there are a number of Republican uh, establishments. There is the establishment, to, such as it is, of certain elected figures. There's also a counter-establishment uh, that you can sort of see uh, in the conservative media, allied with places now like the Heritage Foundation and um, some of the uh, outside, uh, some of the outside groups, um, and the establishment itself. As again, two really fine conservative writers, whom I also. Uh, quote, it's um, uh, fairly often in the book, um, Rich Lowry and uh, Ramesh Panuru, they wrote a great piece called Establishment T. Um, and what they argued is that the establishment, looking at the changes in the party, realized that it needed to embrace some of the ideas of the Tea Party if they were going to survive. So it's not even quite as clear as uh, reporting sometimes suggests uh, that there is as big a divide here. Um, the question is, and this is the last, the final point I want to make, um, the, is, you know, <coughs> let us look at the uh, media role in this. Um, ten years ago now, I think it is, um, I gave the Teddy White lecture here at the Shorenstein Center, and that was a doubly great honor because I was also accompanied by Molly Ivins, uh, who is one of, you know, I mean, pity me having to speak. I, my plane was late, and they put Molly Ivins up. Pity anybody who has to speak after Molly uh, Ivan's, um, the, uh, the, it's, I, I think it's an Ann Richards line, but I'm convinced she wrote it. Molly, fam it was a line that uh, gas had gotten so expensive that women in Texas uh, had started to carpool to run over their husbands. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, um, the, um, you know, I argued then, and I still believe that um, nostalgia about the old media is mistaken, partly because I believe that the rise of an opinionated and mobilizing media is not altogether a bad thing. Indeed, in our history, as Tom Patterson, a great scholar, and it's a real honor to be with him today, 
you know, would be the first to teach his students. All our media started off as very partisan at the beginning of the uh, Republic. What we have come to think of as nonpartisan media was actually a relatively recent um, innovation, a combination of uh, commercial ideas, i.e., you could make more money selling beyond your political party. Um, and then later, ideas sort of put forward by Walter Lippmann about what journalism ought to be. Um, Lippmann actually compared journalists to scientists, which I have to think is the nicest and perhaps most questionable thing ever said about uh, us, but I always was grateful for it. Um, and so I don't think the rise of this uh, partisan media is in and of itself uh, a terrible thing, but I worry very much about the nature of a public conversation um, that loses some of the standards and some of the reporting of the older kind of media. And here, technology is a really mixed, um, um, mixed force. It's clearly a negative force in the sense that uh, new technologies have helped undercut the profit models of traditional newspapers. Newspapers um, w basically relied on monopoly profits to serve the, uh, to produce a public good which is journalism. Journalism is a public good because it serves the democratic debate. It wasn't the journalism that made money, it was the advertising that made money. And online, uh, while there are pioneers, people trying to make money online, they have not yet been able to produce anything like the monopoly profits uh, we used to have. And I worry about the decline of this, um, you know, of this sort of journalism, both as a form of accountability journalism, the guy in the hallway who gets his door knocked on by somebody who works for the government saying they're stealing money down the hall, you better do something about it. And people talk a lot about investigative reporting, but a lot of what came to be investigative reporting was actually from beat reporting, people who really kept their eye on government agencies. Um, but I also worry about something we're very much seeing in this campaign, and I may anticipate a question in this, which is in this strange world we live in with the competition for ratings, uh, if you look at Donald Trump's campaign, uh, no one understood uh, the problems facing the media better than Trump and exploited them more. Um, there are a lot of studies that show that uh, Trump meant ratings. He had proven ratings on The Apprentice. He had celebrity ratings already. He said outrageous things, which produces ratings. Um, you know, early in the campaign, if you measured it by polling, Bernie Sanders had about as much popular support as Donald Trump did. In other words, Sanders' percentage of Democrats versus Trump's percentage of Republicans. There's one study that showed that uh, Trump got 80 to 1, a ratio of 80 to 1 uh, in terms of television time uh, on Bernie uh, Sanders. Uh, again, one of my favorite recent tweets, Nick Confessori said, I was talking on MSNBC about Trump not needing to advertise uh, because he was getting so much cable coverage. He said this, and it fit. Uh, when they cut away from me to a Trump rally, um, and so you know, I think this is you know something that we need uh, we need to talk about. Um, and I think that there is a, um, a, a kind of gatekeeper function, and I don't mean gatekeepers as in keeping candidates out because I don't think that's the media's role, um, but we're going to have a very interesting debate as this campaign goes on about what are the standards that Trump is being held to compared to uh, everyone else. Um, and I am not convinced that he is being held to the same uh, standards, and I think part of that is because uh, Trump is a ratings machine uh, for everyone, and so I think that is something we're going to have to contemplate. I want to close with a quote from Dwight Eisenhower, and again, I'm happy to explain in a crowd that uh, for people old enough were probably for Adlai Stevenson in 1956, <laughs> but I'll nonetheless quote Ike. Um, you know, I, I think that modern conservatives are, it's quite right and legitimate to fear those who came before us, uh, but I don't think they will prosper if they continue to yearn uh, for a past that they'll never be able to call back to life. And I just ran across this Ike quote that I liked. Neither a wise man nor a brave man lies down on the tracks of history to wait for the train of the future to run over him. Uh, I think conservatives, given the age of their coalition, uh, their difficulty in coming to terms with an increasingly diverse country, and the fact that young Americans seem very much turned off to conservative ideas, uh, really need to worry about that train uh, that Ike uh, talked about. 
I'm not sure conservatives will listen to a liberal uh, who makes an argument like this, but as a conservative friend of mine said, sometimes maybe somebody completely outside your life needs to tell you things uh, to help you change, and I hope my friend is uh, right about that. Thank you all so much uh, for coming. So, um, you know, Eisenhower in that same vein said that if a party tried to get rid of Social Security, um, it would never be heard from again. Um, and uh, so I haven't read the book yet. Makes so me so happy I quoted that line <laughs> in the book, so thank so you. So I, I haven't read the book, so this, is, this may be um, a question that's a little bit sideways. But um, so if I were to start, you know, if I put myself on the same project, as you did, right? I, I might have started with Nixon's Southern strategy, right? And, um, you know, I think, you know, a party that tries to ingest the South is likely to get swallowed in the process. Um, and certainly that was true of the Democratic Party. It had all sorts of difficulties because it had the South. Uh, so where does the South fit in? I haven't read it yet. Where does the South fit into the into the story? The South is enormously important mm -hmm. to the story, and so is uh, parallel to that race. Um, and the reason I start with Goldwater is because the Goldwater election prefigured the Southern strategy. It was in that election that you know Alabama turned, Mississippi turned, uh, Louisiana, as I recall, turned. In other words, it, it's. It was the fruition of what had been happening for a long time. One of the things that was um, research on this book um, helped me see more clearly than I had before is how, in fact, the New Deal coalition really started falling apart in the 30s. Uh, and that even though Southerners <coughs> remained nominal Democrats, that is when the conservative coalition uh, that really ran Congress for much of the period after 1938 uh, was formed. And um, I ran across to the uh, great work of uh, Ira Katz-Nelson. If you haven't read his book, uh, Fear Itself, about the New Deal, it's, one of, it's a relatively new and fascinating take on the New Deal era. Um, but he pointed me toward a book called Wither Solid South. It was written by a segregationist intellectual uh, who actually, I think, had some Harvard back in his education, where he... Um, uh, argued that in the long run, the future of the White South lay with the Republican Party. This is in 1947, um, mm -hmm. because Republicans opposed uh, too much federal action and opposed too much regulation of business, and therefore would become natural allies of Southerners who were trying to risk, as they saw it, federal encroachment on uh, Southern uh, prerogatives. Um, and in fact, somewhere I should mark the page so I could look it up just to talk about mm -hmm. the Southern... Uh, um, the Southern influence. Um, I looked at the Congress elected in 1960 and the Congress elected in 2008, uh, where you had roughly equal numbers of Republicans. I think it was 174 and one 178 in the other. Uh, in that 1960 Congress, you had something like 35 Republicans from New York and New England and six or seven from the South. Uh, in the 2008 Congress, you had two from New York or three from New York and New England and like 60 or 65. Uh, from the South. And you're absolutely right that the South is the, um, you know, for, you know, both on the politics of race and uh, in so many other ways, the motive force. And so it used to be said that uh, the Democratic Party uh, had to nominate northern men of southern convictions in the years before the Civil War. And now many Republican leaders, if they want to win and they're not from the South, have to be northern still men in their party. Uh, northern men of, uh, for now anyway, for northern men of Southern convictions. So yeah, the South is very much alive in this book. So Can let's I open it. Let's open it for questions. And oh, uh, the first questions go to students. So um, please, Uzer, please. Oh, oh. Yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, hi, I thank you for your talk. I'm Uzer. I'm a master's student here. Um, I, I guess the question is then, what is a good strategy for a digital media organization when it comes to covering someone like Trump? If you are part of a system that's driven by ratings and by clicks, how do you go about figuring out how much airtime and online space to give to someone like him and the statements that he's No, that's a, that is A, a good question. And if I can piggyback what uh, somebody defending the media now would say is this was an, this is an extraordinary phenomenon. Uh, it is a genuinely interesting and extraordinary phenomenon and is certainly worthy of coverage, which I would uh, agree with. Um, 
I think part of it is, uh, some of it is the wretched excess of quoting, of putting Trump on unmediated for hours and hours. I mean, there was one night when I was in my kitchen uh, and uh, Trump, MSNBC, a network, by the way, I do some work for, um, you know, had uh, the Trump speech on. And I thought, well, let me see if I can get something else. And I switched to CNN. And it was broadcasting exactly the same Trump speech at the same time. And I thought, gee, we now have Trump state television on our cable uh, system. And now I like it when media show significant chunks of speeches. You know, it was also, I believe, the Shorenstein Center that produced the critique of the, uh, was it the 11-second soundbite or 9-second Soundbite, um, uh, um, um, Kiko, Kiko. Um, and although a friend of mine from CBS wrote a piece as a repost talking about the decline of the ink bite, uh, where he showed that quotations in newspapers were also getting shorter, which was fair, fair pushback against uh, we print folk. Um, but I don't think it is justified to show endless, uh, especially when the speeches are identical. Uh, you know, I mean, how many times do you really need the viewers nearly need to hear the same stories about uh, how great a particular real estate deal was or whatever? Um, you know, so I think that's one measure. Um, and obviously, it's always a question of how much critical coverage do you give in the sense of looking at what's behind what Trump did and do we give comparable treatment uh, to candidates? Now, yes, uh, you know, more prominent candidates will get more uh, critical treatment over time, but surely that applies to Trump. So I think that's, a, that's another, uh, another measure. Um, but thirdly, also is to take seriously, and this could lead to more Trump coverage. I mean, I think it's very important for everybody who didn't expect this to happen to understand where the Trump uh, insurgency comes from. So actually, the kind of coverage I am happy we are seeing some of, and I'd like to see more of, is who are the Trump people? What has driven folks to the point where they're supporting Trump? What is it about his message? Because I also think in the long run, it'll be very interesting to figure out how much of it is the backlash kind of message and how much of it is the economic message. How do those two fit together? So I think there's plenty of ways to cover Trump, but constant unmediated Trump uh, there's, uh, I think there's a limit to uh, how much of that we uh, should get. And if people want to find it, they can find it. That's another beautiful thing about the two new technology. If you want to watch a politician's speech, you can watch it. And I think speeches have actually become more important because of the new media. You know, many of the Obama's famous race speech got so much more attention because people could go back and look at it online, which is a much better way to look at a speech. So. Again, that's where this, when what I said at the beginning, quoting my friend Richard Parker, the, 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 the danger of nostalgia is that paradoxically new technology might make the most old-fashioned form of political communication, the speech, more important. And I say, great, but only so many times the same speech. <laughs> okay, so we'll take one more student question and then we're going to open it up, open up the floor. So, yeah, yeah, please. Uh, I'm Joel Smoot, I'm an uh, MVP student. Um, Any relation to Dan Smoot? Do you uh, know? Yeah, yeah, actually. Who, how? Well, I actually need to look up the genealogy, because <laughs> <laughs> My dad insists there's a relation, but it's not like direct. How many people here know who Dan Smoot is? Yeah, Dan Smoot is in my book. Actually, another thing about new technology, I was able to go back and find some of his broadcasts. Oh, really? Uh, and watch some of them. Uh, Dan Smoot was, I guess he ended up in the Birch Society, but was an ex-FBI agent who uh, became very prominent on radio. One, one chapter in my book is called The New, New, Old Right, uh, where I argue that a lot of what looks new is not new at all, and that conservatives have always been looking for ways to innovate on the media, uh, and were quite uh, entrepreneurial about it, in fact. Uh, but Dan Smoot was, had a very big following, and YouTube brought him back just a little bit when he was in his 90s. The Tea Party could find Dan Smoot broadcast. And as far as I could tell from page views, he was getting a new following before he passed recently, relatively recently, to his eternal reward. But it makes me feel good to be in the presence of somebody related. Make, you know, it's so much fun when research comes to life. You know? <laughs> um, so my question is about, so I've been following presidential politics pretty closely since maybe like 2004, and so you look at 04, 08, 12, and now 16. 
And my question is about sort of expertise and projections when you have a true exogenous shock to politics. So I am left-leaning, but I read from Ponaru. Like, I try to get as best I can. But everyone has been horrible at projecting Trump every single time they try to make a benchmark. And he's so outside the current <laughs> system that relative to 12 or 08, people's projections are really bad. And so I, I haven't read your book yet, but as someone who's trying to analyze you know, the Trump phenomenon, how do you sort of weigh uncertainty with that you're an expert? One of the great things about coming to the Kennedy School and the Shorenstein Center is to have a question with exogenous in it. God love you. That was great. And that's a good, it's a, well, it's properly used, too. Um, the, um, a couple of things. One is, lucky for me, the thesis of the book, as Trump was rising, the thesis fit Trump rather than having me, my having to rewrite the entire book to account uh, for uh, Trump. And I have a chapter, in fact, that was originally about the reform conservatives whom I pay a fair amount of attention to, my basic view being they are up to something useful but are not willing to challenge orthodoxy nearly <laughs> enough. Of course, they, like friends who are reform conservatives, say I won't be happy until they're social democrats. And maybe they're right about that. But <laughs> I, I actually think they need to do a more frontal challenge to orthodoxy. But um, that chapter now reads uh, is uh, reforming conservatism or trumping it. Um, and I think there are two questions here. One is Trump himself, and the other is did the movement behind him come as a surprise? And I'm not sure you can fault the media, uh, and I don't mind faulting the media on anything, but I, or, or forget the media, just the pundit, you know, the political class, uh, for thinking that many Americans might regard Trump's candidacy as a joke. I mean, there is a buffoonish quality to the campaign. Those, you know, those, those tweets I read are possible because Trump really does talk that way. You know, and so the notion that people had trouble taking this seriously initially, I don't think that's a complete shock or even anything people should be uh, ashamed of. Um, on the other hand, looked at in retrospect, the Trump phenomenon makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's why it's not just my book. It's that when you think about the cycle of disappointment and betrayal, the role of the Tea Party combined with the role of working class Republicans and their sense of disappointment, those were as Donald Rumsfeld might say, known knowns, you know, that, that uh, Trump was the unknown unknown, but the known knowns that were there make the Trump candidacy possible. Um, and now moving forward, um, you know, I think the analysis is um, significantly more conventional of this race, where I think conventional analysis works relatively well. I, I think people have been cured of the idea that uh, certain things sink a candidacy. I mean, you can attack John McCain's military service, and you can attack the Pope and live to see another day. You can say things about Bush and foreign policy that Democrats were kind of many of them thought, but were unhappy to say, you know, not willing to say. All right, so that's, that is kind of seems unique to Trump at this point. Um, but, you know, why are Republicans having trouble defeating him? Well, I think the Republican Party is now in a collective action problem where the non-Trump part of the Republican Party has an interest in stopping Trump. But the individual candidates in that part of the party have an interest in blocking each other first so they can be the last person who will have the best chance of winning the Republican uh, nomination. And this is a real problem for uh, you know, anti-Trump Republicans. And if I were one of those, you know, John Kasich recently said uh, 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 quite justifiably, you know, a little while ago, no one is paying attention to me, and now I'm being told I should drop out. You know, what's in the middle? You know, I haven't even had a chance to make my case, you know, to the states where I would do best, you know, because the, the primaries are front-loaded in favor of the more conservative states on the whole, or Iowa's more conservative caucus. Uh, electorate. Um, so I think from, um, you know, from here on out, uh, the more conventional kind of just normal political analysis actually does apply uh, to this race. Um, um, although, you know, I, I'm sure Donald Trump will do something else that he'll get away with and then we'll say, wow, you know, that's even beyond the Pope or, you know, everything else he did. Uh, is that satisfactory? Yeah. Um, uh, just a quick add-on. Right now, all the, the, a lot of the debate among sort of the politicos is what is Trump's ceiling. 
And I feel like that, even though more conventional analysis probably gets, as you closer to the general, it has more weight. Um, and I think it would by default. Um, I, I wonder, since I'm seeing such a crazy range among the smart people that I read, about what his ceiling actually is. Like, you know, he has such high school ratings right now. Um, that's another area where I feel like people might be incredibly wrong come July. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's true, but I think there is clearly evidence of a ceiling in the sense that in the general electorate especially, I think it's more complicated inside the Republican Party because I think if you look at those numbers, there's been more swing in the question, is Trump an acceptable candidate? Um, you know, and now that it's narrowed down, are there some Republicans who prefer Trump to Cruz, for example? I imagine there might be. Are there, you know, and so on. Are the... Um, um, the, but I think in the general election electorate, the, his unfavorables have been fairly consistently high among independents and Democrats. Um, and I think it's legitimate still to look at unfavorable ratings as a ceiling. And those, maybe he can bring those down. Maybe a completely new Donald Trump emerges if he wins the nomination. Again, nothing would surprise one with Trump at this point. Um, and maybe that changes. But... Um, but I still think unfavorables are a pretty good measure of uh, ceilings. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I've heard it alleged that there's... You are, if I can ask? I am Jim. Oh, okay. I, I just like to know where people are coming from. Thank you. Yes. Um, I've, I've heard it alleged that there's a, a general um, sense of humor deficit <laughs> the right-wing spectrum vis-a-vis -vis the left-wing spectrum in general political discourse. Uh, that owing to the, the basic disorderliness of life that, that the left-wing embraces sometimes versus the, uh, the orderliness and sense of duty and such things like that on the right-wing. Have you ran, have you run into that? Have you, do you have any thoughts on the, the different senses of humor. I'm so tempted to ask, you've never met a door boring progressive, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, and I say that as a progressive. Uh, I'm thinking of the Daily Show and vis-a-vis uh, -vis some of the comedians that, that Fox has, like uh, where, where Dennis Miller has gone, or, or uh, Gabe uh, Gutman on Sunday nights. It's a really, I've thought about the same question. It's, there is an interesting question about why did Stewart and Colbert take off in a way that other, uh, you know, the, the conservatives have not been able to mount that. Now, some of it it's worth thinking about. Um, being in the opposition, I think, is good for mockery. Uh, and that Stewart and Colbert both took off in the Bush era. Uh, and now they managed to keep it going. I mean, I think, I, I think Stuart and Colbert are brilliant. And I actually think, by the way, uh, progressives should start worrying because uh, while John Oliver is developing a following, think of how much of a broadly progressive argument has been lost in the general uh, conversation with the disappearance of John Stewart, this Colbert moving to a different venue where he can't be as explicitly political. Add to that the fact that MSNBC is becoming less of a, certainly less of a, an overtly progressive uh, network. Uh, that, uh, to me, would be a fascinating study uh, during the campaign at the Shorenstein Center because I think the law, you know, I think there will be less progressive communication losing the two audiences of Stewart and Colbert alone. Um, but, you know, I, I, the, um, I think some of it has to do with opposition. Um, yes, the, the right uh, can be more reverent by definition. You know, it's a more the right tends to be more religious than the left and that sort of thing. But, you know, Reagan had a good sense of humor. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke uh, has a good sense of humor. It's not my cup of tea, but it's not my politics uh, either. Um, you know, I, but I, I can tell you from experience, my book, Why Americans Hate Politics, came out at the same time as The Parliament of Whores by P.J. O'Rourke, and I can tell you which book sold a whole lot more, and it wasn't mine. Um, the, um, so, I don't know. I, I think, um, there, you know, there may be a certain adventurousness on the left, but I, I think it's circumstantial is my sense. I, I think... Um, you know, there are a lot of good right-wing jokes that some of the late-night folks tell against Obama or the Democrats. Um, 
I don't know. You, you're not persuaded. So, Jenny, back here, please. I, Let's move on I'm to. I'm not. Yeah. Um, uh, I, the comedy it, it kind of comes out of the disorderliness of life, the, the, the messiness of life. Jim, one of the best Saturday Night Live writers who invented strategery, the very term strategery, is Jim Downey. I know this because he was my friend from this college, and he's a conservative. You know, and I think that there are, you know, I, I don't know. I, I have, you know, I, I have seen very funny <laughs> conservatives who, who because they don't believe liberal pieties, can be pretty devastating to us. Uh, but anyway, uh, we can talk after. I think it's a great topic. Jenny, please. Uh, EJ, uh, <coughs> I've known EJ for 50 years, so this is fun. To and one of my favorite things I ever wrote was a review of a book, which if you haven't read, you should read, called Beyond Adversary Democracy, written by Jenny. But now I want <laughs> to say that um, your why uh, the right went wrong suggests that it could have done something else. It suggests that if they read your book, they might be able to get, you know, get Correct real, it. start to make good decisions. It doesn't seem Absolutely. to me to, to, uh, <laughs> to take into consideration the structural, the three major structural reasons why we have extremes, particularly on the right. Namely, the Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act and the realignment of the parties. Um, inequality, polarization, absolutely parallels inequality as a, in the U-curve. So, and what you see is more and more out-of-district contributions from individuals who have very extreme views compared to corporations. Um, and then you also have the closeness of the elections ever since 1980. So it doesn't pay a, a Republican to make nice and get bridges and so forth. The job is to get the other party out of business. So those three structural factors are not going to go away. And you can, you know, talk as much sort of sense as you want. And in the face of those three structural factors, <coughs> the moderates in the Republican Party are not going to get anywhere because they're not going to get the money and they're not going to get the people who were Southern Democrats um, and they're, they're not going to win the primaries. The, these, these things are much more deeply structural, it seems to me, than, than your title and the whole thrust of your, your presentation. Can I, take, can I piggyback on that? Yeah, please. If, if you look at the, the economy, the U.S. economy begins, the seeds of its problems show up around Goldwater. They become really serious around Nixon, and real wages for the bottom 40 don't move since the 70s. So what you've got, it seems to me, as you talk about your, the fundamentals of politics, is you've got a politics that's been lying to people for many decades, and it seems to me what you've got now are people are just pissed. And th what Trump is doing is telling them things that they know are true and they've been lied to. Now, what's fascinating about that, it seems to me, is that it ain't where the money part of the Republican Party is. And it'll be very interesting to see where, the, for example, where the Koch's money and Trump are not necessarily aligned at all. And I don't know how you, how, how you picked, I haven't read it yet, but it seems to me that Jenny is exactly right, that we have very big fundamental things going on here. Well, I couldn't have read you or Sandy Jenks or a lot of other people without being acutely aware of structural issues. And I talk a lot about structural issues in the book. Um, you know, I, I, the, um, uh, the, the southernization, the backlash against Johnson is a central sort of, is a thread that runs right through the book and that um, that is clearly a, a building block. I talk a lot about Citizens United and its impact and the rise of the, uh, the radical rich. Uh, and that's another, um, you know, that is another force. And, you know, a, a third structural force, the, the inequality and the backlash that that creates in various ways, it can take a left wing or right wing forms, is also I talk about a great deal. Um, and the, um, you know, and then also um, the uh, other factors like the, um, you know, the big sort, uh, where districts are more homogeneous, where, 
Democrats and liberals tend to be concentrated in big cities, which makes gerrymandering even more effective uh, than it, you know than it would be uh, than it might be. Um, so I take all of that into account. So the so I, I talk about that and um, a you know, one of the problems I had in trying to think through well what is what kind of solution is there here if you accept that there are these structural forces at work and. Um, I see, here, here is what I propose. I mean, I obviously propose an alternative kind of conservatism because I think at the um, ideological or intellectual level, conservatives have actually tried to drive out alternative uh, definitions of conservative. If you go back to the book, The Radical Right, the Daniel Bell book in that collection of essays, one of the essays in there is by Peter V. Eric, um, you know, which was really arguing for a more Burkean conservatism. And I note with a sense of humor that liberals have been throwing Burke at conservatives for, you know, 70 years and saying, why can't you be more like that? Um, but nonetheless, there is that alternative form that was beaten back. So I think it's worth making that case. Um, but I think there are two reasons why, structural reasons why, uh, Republicans will begin to think that this is a bad road. Um, one is demographic, um, and that not simply that they can't win elections if they inspire hostility among both uh, Latinos and Asians. And I think one of the remarkable things is Latinos have always tilted Democratic, though Bush um, w managed about 40% of their votes. But Asian Americans used to vote Republican, and now they voted three to one for Obama. That's a big problem for the Republicans. If you take young people, young people are the replacement generation for the New Deal generation. They are, without question, the most progressive generation that has come along since the New Deal generation. Now, that's partly, as a Marxist would say, overdetermined because they are also more minority than the older population. The over 65s are more white than the under 30s. Um, but still, they are more progressive. And so you do have a lot of Republicans who are very practical and want power who say, OK, we can win midterm elections for a while with an older electorate uh, because older voters are dominant in midterms. But we're not going to win presidential elections very long. And in the long run, we're not going to win the midterms either because in the people who are supporting us will increasingly move on to their eternal reward. Um, we're not going to be left with many supporters. And one of the people I had a great conversation with, one of the fun things about doing this book is a lot of conservatives talked to me. They knew I, where I was coming from, but they knew I was trying to figure this out. And some of them I had, I got to Washington before everybody completely hated each other and stopped talking. So that's <laughs> kind of helpful. Um, but one of the people I uh, talked to was Jim Brulte, who's the Republican state chair in California, who basically is trying to hold up a big sign and say, look at what happened to the Republican Party in California. You know, we alienated Latinos, we alienated Asian Americans, and we, this used to be Ronald Reagan's Republican state, and it is now one of the most Democratic states in the union. And he's trying to rebuild, um, it's very interesting, he's trying to, uh, he's running a lot of Asian American candidates. He figures he'll have more luck early with the Asian Americans than with the Latinos. But he's got a, and there are many other Republicans who see that. So that is a, I think, a structural force that Republicans have to look at that then might open them to the possibility that there's another way of doing this. Richard. CJ, thank you for all you've said today. I want you to do two things, one of which is to talk about the YAF in the 1960s to tell young people today that young people actually influence the politics of the period and the future enormously. And we haven't mentioned specifically just how they did that. The second is I'd like you to take up a question that occupies lots of students here, which is the language of bureaucratic professionalism versus the language of politics, and whether or not populism is the wrong word to describe what's going on on the left and the right, that it's rather a rejection of a kind of elitism that cuts people off from participation in a democratic society. Papers that we like to read or assign our students or papers that Brookings likes to produce are unreadable and <laughs> incomprehensible to 60% of the American people. And a democracy can't function when the language of leadership is couched in terminology that is inaccessible to the majority. So those are my two questions. And if you think those papers are hard, try to read the structuralists, you know. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, the, um, 
Um, by the way, just uh, uh, I want to I want to answer the second question with a parenthetical before I go back, which is, it's one of the reasons why I you, if you talk about the new media developments, it's one of the reasons I like um, things like Vox Upshot and the like, where I think that they're now those are probably still elite audiences, relatively speaking. Um, but I really like the effort that is being made to translate good research into accessible forms. And I think they do a pretty good job of it and are true to the research. And after people get a sense of this is a very interesting study, they might actually repair to the study itself and the like. So I think that there is... I think what Life and Look and magazines of the 30s and 40s did, which is visually present information in ways that are much more accessible to more people. Right. No, it's visual, but it's also explanatory. I mean, a lot of, you know, they do great charts and fun charts, and you can do better visual stuff now than you used to be able to do. Uh, but you can also, um, you know, you can also explain some of these studies in ways that I think a broader public, I mean, there's a limit to the audience for any of that. But, um, and then secondly, I, I think there's also maybe a long conversation about democratic uh, theory here, which is that the, um, you know, the folks who voted for Roosevelt, um, you know, you talk about an elitist band. I mean, Roosevelt's, you know, hired an awful lot of professional and bureaucratic expertise. Um, and um, the average voter uh, did not necessarily read A.A. A. Burley uh, but they understood pretty clearly whose interests those policies serve for the most part. I, I suppose unless you're a new left scholar and say they were deluded and these policies really serve the ruling class. But, you know, and so I, I do think this, I, I don't worry I, maybe as much about the, the language. I do worry about um, the sense of politics being seen as very distant uh, from people. And I think some of that comes from a breakdown of uh, sort of intermediary organizations of all kinds. Labor, you know, on the left, it's certainly uh, the unions. Why are the churches so important uh, in politics? One of the reasons is they are um, among the few sort of standing mediating uh, organizations. And I think the Obama campaign, one of its geniuses was to try <laughs> to turn the campaign into a replacement for the old political machine, that when they contacted people online, they actually got them to meetings in people's living rooms, and they were trying to recreate at, at, at its best. You know, the Obama campaign also spent a hell of a lot of corporate money on television, you know, a lot of money from rich people on television, but at its best, they were trying to do that. Um, the Young Americans for Freedom, YAF, um, uh, there is an interesting paper or thesis to be done on whether the uh, new left or the new right was the more important youth movement of the 1960s, <coughs> that Young Americans for Freedom organized at Bill Buckley's, um, uh, at Bill Buckley's mansion or you know, wonderful house in Sharon, Connecticut, um, really reflected um, a real rise in um, you know, conservative sentiment around on college campuses and elsewhere. And I've always seen the new left and the new right as having a joint project. They were both attacking conventional liberalism uh, and that um, the conservatives referred to the liberal establishment and the or and the conservatives, uh, the liberals, the left referred to establishment liberals. And the order of the words mattered because uh, the conservatives didn't like the establishment because it was liberal, and the left didn't like the liberals because they were establishment. Uh, and so you had this kind of joint pincer movement. But the you know in many ways, YAFs. You know, much as I love the Port Huron Statement, the founding document of SDS, which is worth reading if you've never read it, and it's called for participatory democracy, YAF had the greater staying power. YAF had the greater influence uh, on, on American politics. And these were, um, you know, and they produced, probably produced more politicians, uh, would be my uh, guess, uh, partly because they embraced the basic electoral process in a way large parts of the new left came to reject with time, with a few exceptions. And Tom Hayden came back and ran for office and won in, at some levels. Um, the, um, but anyway, the, the, to say that young people are, are power, powerless, that's a very good example of two movements of the young that had 
enormous influence on opposite sides. Um, your other question was? It, was? it was that question about YAF power, and the other was about bureaucratic professionalism, and you've answered that already. Yeah. So. And the... Because uh, I, I, I'm, I'm always reluctant about the war on bureaucratic professionalism. On the one hand, and we've talked about this yeah. ourselves, I worry about schools like the public policy school at Georgetown, the Kennedy School, and others, which so focus on particular forms of expertise, which are good to teach, and they are concrete, and quant is good, and quant is useful, uh, but don't talk a lot about political leadership or politics or the way in which uh, you may find a, an, a, a good policy through intelligent policy analysis, but the task of actually getting that policy adopted is a political task. And I've always, and, and, and I love public policy schools, but I wonder about this challenge we face about linking, you know, I don't like things that, I, I don't like anything that's anti-political, but that just proves I'm a political obsessive. But thank you for coming. And thank you all thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.